The scripture reading is going to be in John 20, and you can stand as you have your Bibles and flip there. If you're at our sunrise service, it's not going to be unfamiliar to you. John 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's pray. Gracious and faithful, good Heavenly Father, we stand before your presence with joy and gladness in our hearts. God, weeping comes in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we celebrate on this glorious morning the faithful and the salvific work, God, that was completed on the cross and the resurrection from the dead for those who believe. God, we pray that we would take joy, that we would rejoice in your word. God, that we would approach you with humility of heart. And God, we would see in you the life that you came truly to bestow as the author and finisher of life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Well, for those who are new this morning, welcome to Bernie Bible Church. My name is Connor. I'm just a member here of Bernie Bible Church, and it is a joy and a pleasure, uh, a bit of an unexpected, or I was not expecting necessarily to uh, maybe be with you, this morning, but I'm, I'm glad to be. Jewel is still pregnant. Uh, the baby has, has not come, so we are looking forward to that. John breathes his sigh of relief. He was my last, last minute backup there. Uh, but it's even better to be with you guys this morning, Eastern morning. Not only is it a new day that God has made, but it is a new life that we get to celebrate and live in together. And I pray that we all are here on this new day that God has made in the new life that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. I just wanted to repeat something that Jeff said last week and how last week, if you're here with us, how uh, enjoyable and truly life-giving it was to hear from the three testimonies, which really attest to the fact of, of what this Sunday is all about, that God has changed our lives. In Christ, everything has changed, new beginnings, and just to hear the faithful and transforming work uh, personally through the three that, that spoke last week, I'm 
uh, just grateful to, to hear and be a part of, and just realize that that is a work that God is doing in, in all of our hearts, that God is changing every part of us and transforming that. And, and you really cannot separate the testimony with the resurrection. You cannot separate the faith in the testimony. You really cannot separate the transformative work that God wants to do uh, apart from the resurrection and the testimony that we have in Christ. I'd like to uh, begin with a quote that I have found helpful and I just appreciate by, by C.S. Lewis, one that speaks in regard to the resurrection and I hope is a springboard for us as we look into John chapter 20 a little bit more this morning. He says this, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and defeated the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through everything in life that God has changed. Uh, That would be the rest of our lives. That's what John chapter 20 really says. Hey, I... There were so many more things that Jesus did, and I couldn't even find the words to say them in this book. Not enough pages and scrolls in history could fill all that God is and, and all that he has done. And the same is true uh, for us this morning. So don't worry. I do have a time limit, and it does uh, come to a conclusion for me this morning, but hopefully continues in our lives practically uh, after we leave. Now, John chapter 20 and, and the change that God wants to begin here, uh, this is not a new passage, I, I, I hope to you. This is probably a familiar passage. You might have even heard an Easter sermon on this passage. But I always will be uh, burned with one of the remarks that uh, Jerry Benjamin will so often tell us as students, that we are not to let familiarity breed neglect in terms of God's word because it is God's living word by his living spirit about the living Son of Jesus. And so no passage, no verse that we could ever read could come to its final conclusion this side of heaven. And so with that being said, let's begin in verse 1. And it begins with its new beginnings. It says, now on the first day of the week. In the very beginning, John wants to start in chapter 20 that this is something new. That is taking place. A new beginning, the first day of the week, that this is an indication that God is going to do something that he has not done before. Now, we know in John chapter, uh, John chapter 11, in this gospel, we, we have people that die, and God brings them back to life. But the difference between those like Lazarus and he of Jesus, to poor Lazarus had to die again. Each of those people, Jairus' daughter, she died again, right? Poor Lazarus, even more so. When he brought back to life, the Pharisees were like, okay, now we really got to kill him. Poor guy. <laughs> Just gets back on the scene, and boom, he's immediately uh, has a warrant over his head. But Jesus' resurrection is a death never to die again. It is a life that will continue to live on for eternity. Never to die again. The first death and payment that was made on the cross This is why he says, it is finished. It is done. This is a new event. The start of a new week 
for something that God is doing in this world. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, which all of the gospel accounts mention her specifically by name here, she came early to the tomb while it was dark and saw the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. She comes early in the morning here. The stone was already done. Uh, Jesus has already been resurrected from the dead at this point, but it's still dark. So hard to see, filled with mourning. Here she, saws, she sees the tomb, and the tomb is taken away. So she immediately goes and runs, which is going to be familiar how her story ends, actually. She goes and tells others, specifically to Simon Peter. And we think about his three betrayals. We think about his three denials of Jesus. And she runs and tells Peter and to the other disciple, whom we believe John, whom Jesus loved. And he said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Which was not an uncommon thing. Their grave mongers were present. Uh, the Roman Empire actually put a death warrant on people who would do that. So this is not weird. It was not uncommon for people to go and try to take the costly spices and, and denard and, and, and all the anointing that would have been there. And so very distraught of spirit about this. Who would do that? It, it is very jacked up to even think that people do that. She runs forth and tells him, and Peter and John run. But the other disciple runs there faster. No big event there besides that he just, Peter's just probably older. And John the younger, he gets there first. But he stops at the face of the tomb, stoops down in the ground and looks in and does not see anything but linen wrappings lying there. But Peter, as soon as he arrives, just busts right in to the tomb, right past John into the tomb, but makes the same historical fact and observation. No body. The only evidence there is linen wrappings and a face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying next to it, but rolled up by itself there. Now, another guest speaker comes to mind when I think of this verse, Bernard Briscoe. It was my, it was my uh, second week of Bible school. No idea what I got myself into, and there is a man, Bernard Briscoe, yelling at the top of his voice in this thick British accent from the book of Romans that there is a man in heaven. I cannot do justice to how he actually said it. But there is a man in heaven. This was not a mystical or a spiritual resurrection. This was a historical, physical, bodily resurrection. And he wanted us to remember it. And remember it, I did. And I will never forget that. But how easy would it have been for Jesus to tell his disciples as he was here in this world, the death I'm going to die and the, and the resurrection that's going to come, it's going to be a, a, a spiritual one. It's going to be a mystical one. I'm going to do it. Who is to verify that it happened or didn't happen? Right? And it would be easy to say that, and there would be no proof whether it happened or not. Right, this is one of the greatest differences between the worldview and the, and the faith of Christianity and Christ to any other faith and any other worldview. Right? Muhammad's going to say, I received a vision, but only I did. It was a spiritual one. It was a mystical one. Can't verify it. 
Joseph Smith, years later, is going to say, I received a vision, and only I did. And it was a spiritual, it was a mystical one. Who's to verify? Nobody can. But Jesus, the Lord of glory, has left his fingerprint in human history by the body not being in the tomb, but being raised from the dead in heaven. There's a man who stands, who lives, and pleads for us before the Father. This was a convincing proof right, for the disciples. It says, now when they uh, stood there, after seeing that in verse 8, they had come to the tomb and entered, and they saw, John finally comes in, and he believes. For he did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Which was not uncommon. Even the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as they're walking with Jesus, Jesus cloaks himself, covers himself. They don't recognize him, right? And at the end of Luke, it says, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he just opens their eyes. Hey, this is what has been true all along. This, is, this has been the gift already given to you, and, and we just didn't have the capacity yet to really realize the full potential of the promises that were to come. Not anything necessarily new. Jesus had promised it. But now the disciples began to understand the reality of his word, that he really is who he said he is. Everything he did speaks to the fact of his word. And this was a powerful evidence. This was so powerful, two men that saw this, this would have been uh, adequate, this would have been withheld or upheld in a Jewish court. The authority and the witness of two men, two to three witnesses, would have been enough to you know, stand in court and stand well in court. But more than just the legality of it, again, this was, what, what happens here is not their minds are convinced, but their hearts believe. Their hearts believe that Jesus is who he said that he is. The work that he displayed is indeed not a, not a condemned criminal, as the Romans made him out to be, not a heretical liar, as the religious authorities made him out to be. He truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, as he claimed to be. Warren Wiersbe says, The empty cross and the empty tomb are God's receipts, telling us that the debt of our sins have been fully Paid in full. It is finished. It has been paid and there is nothing more that is needed. It is done. It is finished. The empty cross and the empty tomb are the receipts. Now verify that in history. Now this passage here in John 20, it starts with belief, right? And they came and they believed. And this chapter also ends with that same reality. Go over to uh, verse 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, have, you may have life in his name. I just want to pause and say that really is the point of the resurrection. That we would believe in the reality of the life of God, in the life of Christ. 
that he's always come to give. Right? Not anything new of God. No change of God. But that we would be changed. We would be changed to be made more like him. Because the beginning of transformation is pistuo. To simply believe. To entrust ourselves. To surrender control to. To join ourselves to in oneness. It's to simply believe. And from that belief, the transformation and the transforming life of Christ begins in us to be made more like him. We change, not him. So as the resurrection of Jesus is a non-negotiable and in, in, in historical, as a historical reality, it's also a, a non-negotiable in the transformative reality that's going to take place in our heart. And I want to look through three specific lenses through the rest of this chapter to see how the resurrected Christ, the living God, changes us more and more into his image. That's the power. That's the reality. And that's what's available to us by a living God who came off the cross for us. So going on in John chapter 20 and verse 11, it says, But Mary, so back to Mary here, was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them. Coming early to the morning, this chapter began, Right? In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17, it says, I love them that love me, and those who seek me early shall find me. Coming to the tomb in the morning is dark outside, right? It kind of made me a little of an indication of her understanding of the resurrection. It's still dark and doesn't fully understand. She's still, in a sense, living in the darkness of the cross there. And that darkness breeds sorrow because as First Corinthians says, if Christ simply died, then we are all men to be most pitied. We are stuck in our sin, right? stuck in the sorrow that is there of sin. So mourning and weeping and sorrowful, she weeps as she looks in the tomb and does not understand at this point that Jesus is resurrected, thinking that he's been taken there. But she sees, and interesting, there's no real... Uh, there's no commentary on, you know, why she makes this reaction to the angels. Almost every time an angel sees in Scripture, there's like this blowback, like, whoa, don't kill me kind of moment there. But you know when we're sorrowful, when you are grieving, when you are mourning, right? Sometimes your senses aren't fully acute there of what's happening around you. And so speaking very normally to these angels Right? She, she just observes them and questions, where is Jesus? But the angels are a witness. Again, they're the second witness or the second reality that Jesus is not here. Your looking is, is in vain. You're, he's, he, you're not going to find him here because God's work has been completed, not just by the death, but also by the resurrection. It kind of has a, an imagery of, think back Old Testament, all right, Bible scholars here, back into Exodus, 
and you have the tabernacle there, and in the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, right? On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there is the mercy seat. And on either side of the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant are these two kind of wild creatures in Scripture that we don't know a whole lot about, right? The cherubim, all we know is in Isaiah that they have lots of eyes. They see everything that happens, and everything they see in that presence of God says, holy, holy, holy. They are there to make sure nothing unholy comes into the holy presence of God. And that mercy seat there is where God's wrath comes down and is propitiated, is satisfied. It's like a lightning rod, right? It takes all the energy of God's wrath and it grounds it based on the blood of the sacrifice there. It's almost as if these Two angels are now standing like those cherubim at the head and the foot there saying, God's full wrath forever has been satisfied, not just by the death, but that this is a death, as Hebrew says, that is one time for all. It is finished. It is done. Jesus has taken it. And now all things through the resurrection, he's not here, are under his feet. God has satisfied his wrath in his son. And that satisfaction now lives on and is available for us for eternity as long as Jesus lives. That is available to you and to I. And so now from that reaction, she again, not really answered there by the angels, but she turns around. Maybe she hears the footsteps approaching from behind her. So it says, verse 14, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So again, kind of flashback, maybe road of Emmaus here. How does she not recognize Jesus? Again, dark, early in the morning. She's weeping. Tears have filled her eyes. You don't always see straight. Right? Again, senses aren't necessarily acute. But also, Jesus might have just been cloaking himself as well, like he did with the two men on the road to Emmaus there. And he asks her, Almost the same questions here. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And his questions cut right to the heart of Mary's sorrow, of her mourning there. He addresses the sorrow that, you know, her expectations just quite aren't right. This Jesus right, who has saved her, who has rescued her, who she was following. He goes and he dies? Didn't see that coming. Died a brutal, painful death on the Roman cross? I did not see that. And then he's not here? Some grave mongers came and took him away? It's just like, boom, blow after blow after blow, according to our expectations. And Jesus addresses those. What is causing you sorrow? And whom is it that you seek? revive that sorrow. And she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And I think Jesus, seeing the heart of Mary, just wants Jesus, just wants to find him, wants to be with him, even in his death. Just tell me where he is. I think he sees her heart. Right? These questions weren't for him as it was necessarily an opportunity of expression of love and faith for her. Right? 
He knew that, but it was an opportunity for her. So she speaks, and seeing her heart, he says, Mary. He's more emphatic, like, Mary, <laughs> kind of get her attention early in the morning. Wake her up. Bring her out of her comatose there. I think of John chapter 10, verse 3 and 14, which says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Lachlan said it wonderfully this morning at the sunrise service. Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep. A good shepherd knows each of his sheep individually. A good shepherd recognizes the fear in each sheep. He understands the difference in each sheep. And Jesus, the good shepherd of his flock, a good God of his people, he understands, he knows us, and he is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He doesn't just know your name. Right? Psalm 139 goes into detail about the extravagance of his knowledge of us and his pursuit and his desire of us, not just to know about us, but that we would know him like he knows us. That is his goal in knowing our name, is that we would respond and know his name, and not just his name, but his character, his provision. And so he says, Mary... And she wakes up from this comatose there, and she turns to him and says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then it seems like in this next verse that she would have turned, made that explanation in a running way. Like she turns, runs, and then bear hugs him, like clings to him. There is no greater feeling as a dad than coming home, opening the door, and a child running to you, clinging to you. Right now, it's Callum. Sooner they open the door, daddy, 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 right, running and just bear hugs, right? Because that's the natural response when you see someone you love. I think of the prodigal son. When he comes home, you have this rich man who is the father, right? In ancient Near East times, rich men of power like that never run. They do not run. They are of power. They have servants. They do all these things for them. But he runs when he sees the son coming home and greets his son. And so I think there is a, a, a similar action happening here because in verse 17, Jesus' response is, is not what we think it would be, which he says, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brethren, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. There is my son. <laughs> so as she is clinging to him, I think Jesus potentially sees in here an opportunity for a misunderstanding, right? And I think this response of Jesus is interesting because it's twofold. And the first one is this. In this, wait, hold on, Mary. Pause. Allow me to explain the reality here of this resurrection. One, it is better that I ascend to the Father. 
Stop clinging to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Right? This is what John says back in chapter 16. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Don't cling to me because it is actually better that I ascend back to the Father so that the comforter, the helper, and the presence of the Spirit of Christ can dwell in you. Not next to you, not in front of you, but more intimate, much nearer in your hearts and take up residence with you. So this is good. You might think this is good, but there is something better coming yet. So don't cling to me. I'm ascending to the Father and the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of power will come and rest on you for that is very much better. But then he says, in that ascension as well, go and tell my brethren, tell them that I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Because what does the ascension mean? Well, essentially, it means that death has been defeated. Death has not won. Go and tell your brethren, I've ascended because the grave no longer has authority over me. It's what Athanasius in church history says, the cross has now become the glorious monument to death's defeat. I love that, partially because I'm a nerd and I love history, but I also love the irony of the cross. It is now a symbol of death's defeat. Not Jesus' defeat, Death's defeat. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go and tell the brethren that the cross is the wonder of God's sacrificial love and that the resurrection is the beauty of of God's sanctifying life. Go and tell them that I ascend to the Father. And now the cross makes sense, right? It was a sacrificial act of love because there is one now who can bestow it and give it as long as he lives. And through that love, sanctify us further and transform us further into his nature and into his likeness. So stop clinging to me. I ascend the Father. Go. And she goes, right? She came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. And so we wrap up that first section. We see Mary, she comes to the tomb and the sorrow of defeat. The sorrowful defeat of sin. And yet leaves the tomb announcing the wondrous victory and joy of the resurrection. Because God never leaves us in our sorrow, but in our sorrow meets us with the joy that comes in the morning. God is able to make all things new. This passage continues. So she goes to the disciples, and verse 19, a similar start. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, again, new beginnings, 
And when the doors were shut where the Jews were, or where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. There's a lot of transitions in this section and hardly any reaction and why they, they do what they do. And I don't think that's the point really here. It's just meant to see the, the different audiences that Jesus is appearing to. So the disciples must have either not heard Mary's proclamations or, like the disciples in the beginning of this chapter, didn't necessarily believe or understand the report themselves. But either way, however they are, they're in all, this room all together, minus one, and they're hiding in fear. Hiding for fear of the Jews. Even though Jesus has promised them to take courage, for in this world you have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Even though he has given the promises that his presence is greater and that he was going to redeem, and this is part of God's plan, they are still not fully recognizing the reality, and in fear, they're hiding there, and this is where Jesus meets them in their fear. And his first word is not rebuke. It is not, right, the, the word of condemnation. It is a word of kindness, a word of greeting, a word of joy. He says, shalom, peace, peace be with you, peace be with you. But right after that, he says, this peace came at a price. You can have peace. Right now, comes at the price. Verse 20, when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. That's the price that came for the peace. Right? This was the peace of God that only can come through the piercings from his hands and his side. The price paid for us to know peace. The peace of God. But this Peace of God has a tangible reaction to them. When he says, peace be with you, and he shows them his hands and his sides, it says the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so this peace of God brings joy and gladness to their hearts. They now understand and they see, again, the promises, the reality of the living God. So joy and gladness are brought to their hearts his peace can conquer and is greater than their failures of, of, of unbelief and not believing and living in fear. And his peace is greater even than fear itself. That's going to be very important because this next verse that he says is, I am sending you out to the very people in this very world that crucified me. He says, peace be with you again, shalom, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And we know from church history, persecution, trial, and hardship really are waiting for them. The very, the very things that happened to Jesus happened to almost all the disciples as well. The peace of God that he bought, that God bought with the price of his son and now lives in Christ is not the absence of fear. The peace of God is not the absence of fear, but rather what the peace of God, who the peace of God is to us now in Christ, is the confidence of His greater presence 
He gives peace in our fears. He gives peace in our failures. Peace in our tribulations. This is a peace that is greater than what this world can give, is the presence of God in our hearts. Just recently, Jewel and I took our daughter and son down to the Duseum in San Antonio. Incredible place for children just to go and explore this massive building for all these kinesthetic things for them to do. It's so much fun to watch them interact with all these things, even as an almost three-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old. But I was out there with my brother-in-law, and uh, we went outside for something, and there's this massive, like, 35-foot-long rope bridge that kids get up on, kids, mind you, uh, get up on. That's tempting uses for me as well. Uh, and they, you hold on to the ropes, and they walk on this little, tiny uh, section of rope, three strands across. And so it kind of challenged their balance there, and the first time Brielle gets up there, she's you know, very cautious. She's, she, she knows herself very well. Uh, she's unlike my son. She throws himself to the wind. And she comes up to the edge of it, and he looks at me. I'm right there next to her, and she goes, Daddy, I'm scared. Daddy, I'm scared. And that look of fear in her eyes just breaks your heart as a, as a father. And it would be wrong for me to look at her and say, Brielle, are you kidding me? Look at this thing. Come on, it's 35 feet. You're like, what, five feet off the ground? You're really scared of this? Come on, be braver. You got this. You can do it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Right? That would be wrong response as a father. Rather, my response was, Brielle, it's okay to be a little bit scared, but you can also be brave because I'm right here. I'm right next to you. See that moment, like those those big brown eyes just look at you in your eyes, and it's a decision. Will I trust the presence of my father or not? And to the joy of my heart, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing a child trust you. She grabs onto that rope. I just kind of keep my hands as if I was there, but she does it. She moves through the whole thing, and she finishes, and she turns around, and she's so excited we did it, right? We did it together. Now, ultimately, as a, as a human and earthly father, my, my presence can only be so close, right? Like, I can only be right there next to her. That only goes so far in our fears. The reality is I'm not going to be there for my daughter in everything she experiences in life. The reality is there are many things in this world that we fear that no one can help you with. The person sitting next to you is not going to be able to be there, whether that's physically or they're just not sufficient enough, you will find them faithless. But there is the faithful one whose presence is pure, whose presence is completely available in our fears. And that's the presence of Christ because he lives and he lives in us to be the very peace of God. Now, the price of peace, right, conquers our failures, it conquers our fears, but more than anything, it might actually be that he now, the peace of God, gives us the freedom of forgiveness in the presence of the Father. And he goes on to say, he speaks of this forgiveness, and when he said these things, verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them, 
And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Ultimately, it is not our place to bring about forgiveness into the lives of one another. That has been done. That's been accomplished on the cross. We have the joy of simply announcing what is available to be true as we live in the forgiveness of Christ. That then is naturally extended to one another. But that peace of forgiveness with the Father only comes by the price that was paid of the cross and the reality that price, again, has been paid and continues to be paid as long as he lives. Now to finish up this section, let's talk about that one. The one who wasn't there amongst the disciples in the upper room. In verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Demas, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now there's often one adjective described for Thomas that we've grown up saying in the church. Doubting Thomas. But Scripture isn't that casual with that adjective. Right? Scripture doesn't cut any corners or give any excuses for Thomas that this is doubt. Scripture calls this unbelief. That this is unbelieving, Thomas. Because he said it himself, right? Unless I see, unless I touch, unless I, man, put my hands into the side where the spear or the sword was put into Jesus, he says, I will not believe. In the Greek, it says, I positively will not believe. And this is emphatic here. I'm not like, yeah, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Kind of on the fence here. I positively will not believe unless I see and touch and fully experience this. One commentary said it's interesting that Thomas's name means twin, but it also is the same meaning for the other name that he's called, Didymus. Twin. They both mean twin. And I don't, we don't know in Scripture who his twin is, but sometimes I wonder if you and I are his twin. If there's moments in life and we say, I simply cannot believe this is true. I will not believe this is true. Right? Maybe we're, we're saying, unless I am compelled to believe when it makes sense to me, when I understand it fully, then I'll believe. Or when I can wrap my hands around it, then I'll believe. Or when it makes sense according to nature, in the natural realm, then I will believe. Until then, I will not believe. Maybe more practically by some of us in the audience, we're, we're one of those that says, I will not believe because I simply don't want to believe. We go through the motions of going to church all of our lives. We've said we're Christians based on the cultural world that we live in in Texas. Or my family goes to church, the more uh, family identification. But at the end of the day, I will not believe, and we see that in the choices that I make. This is my life, my one life to live, and I will not be defined by another. This is, I'm the captain of this ship. I'm the captain of my own soul, and I will not believe, he said. We can be a lot like this man, Thomas. If we're honest 
with ourselves. And you know what? That's what I appreciate about Thomas. At least he's honest, right? He's not playing it casual. At least he says it for what it is. This is where his heart is. And I wonder if we can be as honest as Thomas right now before the Lord. Where are we? Where are we in our faith in Christ? Are we waiting for something to happen to say, then I'll believe? Because if that's the case, there is not one thing that will be given to you that you will see in which qualifies that, right? The Pharisees saw Lazarus raised from the grave, and they said to themselves, yep, now we got to kill him, right? If there was one thing in which they saw to say, wow, we should really believe this guy, it probably would have been Lazarus. But that was the thing they said, now we really got to kill him. So there, if, if you're waiting for something for it to make sense in your mind, humanly, fleshly, or if you're waiting to, for this to uh, you know, make you feel better, if you're waiting for this to say, if this, this, and this happens, then you know what? I'll give my attention to it. You simply will not. Maybe we can be as honest as we are with him. And I'm not naive to think that some in this audience identify as a twin with Thomas in some way, shape, or form there. So what changed for this man? The peace of God. To finish out his section, verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Maybe more specifically, you, Thomas, peace to your raging mind. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. The living Lord Jesus came, appeared through the doors, and spoke to him the word of kindness. Shalom. And then, again, not rebuke, not condemnation, not the fire brimstone we talked about. Shalom. Peace of God. And then he invites him to come. He takes him up on this. And this is almost like, dude, what are you doing? Like identifying as a fool, which Thomas is, but that's the heart of Jesus, the pursuit of Jesus. Come and see. Come and taste and see that I am good. It's just the invitation to come into his presence, to learn from me, take my yoke upon and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And we do not have any explanation if Thomas ever even took Jesus up on that offer. Right? There's no, it, Thomas stood up and actually put it in. That invitation of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus is what prompts, uh, what prompts Thomas's heart to say, my Lord and my God. And brings about the assurance, the security, and the confidence of faith. Christ is his hope. It may not make sense to me. I don't understand how it happened. But the presence of God is greater than my heart. The psalmist says, God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are better than my thoughts. I tell the students all the time, if God was just to lay it all out in front of you and say, this is why I do this, 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 and this, you would say, I don't believe it. Right? His, his, his thoughts are too wonderful for our mind to comprehend. But His presence is sufficiently available for us to come into and have our hearts and our minds put at ease. Because the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But if we are looking through a religious or a naturalistic or a rational lens to try to understand Jesus, to try to make sense of Jesus, we are going to be like a ship without a rudder out there in the Bering Strait. We will be tossed and turned by every wind of doctrine. But when we accept the invitation of Jesus to come, to learn of him, to sit at his feet, then we receive a good and kind, patient God who welcomes us in peace, who turns our sorrows to joys in the morning, whose peace trumps our fears, that overwhelms our failures and brings us more and more to the magnificent light of Christ. No other religion, no other worldview has this promise at the center of its heart. No other God, no other faith can mend the broken heart. No worldview can turn my fear to peace in the midst of crisis. And no person or thing can assure my heart by the personal presence like the living Lord Jesus can. I want to conclude with a testimony. As I said in the beginning, testimonies are all about the resurrection of Jesus. This is actually in our D group book that we as guys have been reading. It's about a man named Sundar Singh. It says he was born into a wealthy Sikh family in the early 1900s in northern India. His mother raised him to be an ascetic yogi, concerned completely with the spiritual life, and he was deeply educated in Hindu thought. He angrily fought against Western attempts to come into his culture and into his villages. He burned Bibles as much as he could and resisted Christian doctrine as long as it was spoken about. At age 16, his life was void and empty, and he began to take measures to take his own life. But an encounter with Jesus that night changed him. His family was stunned and pleaded that he return to his ancestral faith, which he would not do, which meant later chasing him out of his own home. Persecution by his family included attempted poisoning, which nearly ended his life, but he survived and traveled far and wide to tell others about Jesus. Though he sought no fame, crowds made up of, only, of not only commoners, but curious intellectuals often greeted him. Among these, a, professors, a professor of comparative religions at the University of Cambridge came and asked Singh, what have you found in Christianity that you have not found in your old religion? His reply was, professor, I have found the dear Lord Jesus. Not fully grasping his reply, the professor pressed on and said, oh yes, I quite understand, but, but what principle or doctrine? Tell me, what new philosophy have you found in Christianity? Again, Singh simply replied, Professor, I have found the dear Lord Jesus. That sets 
the Christian apart from this world. No philosophy, no new doctrine, no new or higher gnosis brings us the joy, the peace, and the assurance of faith, but the living, dear Lord Jesus himself in whom our faith is placed in. So let me end by asking you this. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe this? Is this transformation taking place in you? Do you have this hope that I have in my dear Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Father, this is joyful. This is wonderful. This is truly, at the very heart, good news that Jesus lives. God, everything that was accomplished on the cross and now continues to happen through us is truly wonderful news. God, thank you that your life continues to be lived, that you continue to make intercession for us when we fail, when we find fear at our hearts, when the flesh knocks and says, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. God, you are present. Jesus, you live. You are there interceding for us as a high priest, as a faithful one. You understand us, you know us, and you speak to us intimately by the Spirit of God that lives within us. God, I pray that each one in this room would know that hope, would know your presence. Not to simply identify as a Christian or simply say, yeah, I believe, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and our heart as we lay our lives down at your feet and say, dear Lord Jesus, you are the resurrection and you are the life. Fight against our fear. Fight against our failure, God. Fight against our heart of unbelief and conquer and transform into the image and the life of Christ. This we pray in your name.